I'm Coach Tony Miller, and you're listening to a Quick Timeout Podcast. We have conversations with basketball coaches from around the country focused on specific topics designed simply to help grow the game. Welcome to another episode of a Quick Timeout Podcast presented by Dr. Dish Basketball. If you haven't had a chance yet to visit Dr. Dish Basketball and specifically their blog section, you're really missing out on a bunch of great resources. Included in those resources is a series that I've designed for you to use with your players this offseason. For each drill that's there, you'll find a diagram, an explanation, and then also a video of the drill. To find out more about those, visit drdishbasketball.com and click on the blog section from the drop-down menu. Again, that's drdishbasketball.com. It's great to have with us today Coach Michael Jagaki from Hofstra University Women's Basketball. He's also the author of the book Lockdown Defense, Developing Elite Defenders. Coach, thanks for coming on the podcast. No, it's a pleasure. You know, as a podcast junkie myself, this is definitely one I have in my rotation in my library. So it's I honor, appreciate honor that. to be here. That's great. Uh, before we get into like talking defense and specifics, kind of give us a quick rundown of how you got to there at Hofstra. Yeah. So, you know, I have a little odd coaching journey, I would say, because I actually started coaching when most people in our profession are still playing, right? And, and rightfully so. But I started coaching when I was a sophomore in college, started beginning with youth teams and volunteering at my former high school and quickly became a passion and certainly an obsession of mine. So, you know, from there, I kind of tried to work my way up and I became the varsity assistant coach and the head JV coach and then opened up my own AU program. And that's about the same time I started my own YouTube channel. And after four years, I kind of had the chance to join Lee DeForce at Combine Academy as his associate head coach. And that's a prep school in, in North Carolina. And we had some quick success there. And that was able to springboard me to my first chance to join college basketball at Hofstra as video coordinator. And fortunate in year three to be stepping into a assistant coaching position for coach Santos and excited what we're building here at Hofstra women's basketball. As you mentioned, the YouTube page, tons of great resources. We'll direct people towards that at the end. But I know one of those passions has been the focus on defense, in particular, talking about guarding the basketball itself and individual breakdown stuff. And so that's kind of where we'll spend most of our time today. Before that, though, I want to go bigger picture and talk more about like defensive system and ideas, maybe things that are out of the ordinary a little bit, or just simply talking about the system as a whole and how it is backed up by what you do on an individual basis. You know, in the lockdown book, the first chapter focuses on, you know, a coach's defensive system. And I know I'm always self-critical as a coach first before I'm critical of my players. You know, I really want my players to get better at X, Y, Z. I need to make sure I'm putting them in the best position to do X, Y, Z. So that's kind of where the book starts. If we want better on-ball defenders, we need to make sure our defensive coaches that we are instilling systems that are putting them in position to do that. And so just to give you a brief example, kind of a, the hardest litmus test for a defensive system is it's guarding these pairing actions, right? And those are offensive actions that occur one immediately after the other. And so I think the best example is kind of like a down screen floppy action right into a wing ball screen. In our defensive system, if we're asking our players to kind of shoot the gap or, or you know, third lane or however you might call it on that pin down, uh, then immediately on the catch on the wing, you know, you can see that their foot angles are going to be able to take away middle and force baseline. And then when that immediate ball screen comes, 
if we're going to ice that ball screen, you can see how the defenders are just naturally in position to execute those coverages. Whereas if we're a team that's going to say hard hedge or trap that wing ball screen, then that on-ball defender needs to completely change his on-ball stance for that ball screen. So now he has to shoot the third lane. He has to take away middle on the catch. And then we have to rely on the communication execution to completely change kind of how we're guarding to execute our next coverage, which would be a hedge. So you can see that just making sure our defensive systems are always putting our players in position to make it easy to, to do the coverages and what we're asking them and really focus on guarding the ball. And so I think that's really where we need to start, you know, in developing great defenders and making sure that we're putting them in position to do that. As you mentioned, one of the things that I have found is those pairing actions, I call them consecutive actions. Most of the time, coaches are teaching those things in isolation. So we're working on defending a down screen, or we're working on defending a cross screen, or we're working on defending a ball screen. And it's nice and clean in practice, but then it becomes very sloppy in games because, as you said, when those things are put together, players aren't really used to that. And as you mentioned, I'd like for you to talk more about about the on the ball idea from the standpoint of you have to start with that as a base, I'm guessing is what you're primarily saying. With that in mind, how do you go about doing that? And what are some of the things that you talk about in regards to that individual defense aspect? I think it's it's a great topic, right? Because I think on ball defense is, is kind of like a jump shot, right? It's slightly different for every player but there are definitely some consistencies of, of great players. And, and I think we must start with the defensive stance and not necessarily the stance that you you're thinking of, you know, from the eighties or every, every, you know, summer camp will, will be at, but when you break down kind of great defenders, there's really two dominant stances they use. And that's, you know, what we refer to at lockdown defense as the upward stance and the forward stance. And depending on that player's athletic ability or the, the role that player has to play, you can kind of choose the best stance for them. And I think stance is really that foundation that you're talking about, that, that first in, instance that's so important because how you know, their stance is going to determine their defensive movement. And ultimately, defense is about movement, much like you know, a shooting mechanic and, and the motion of a shot. Do you want to describe those two stances a little bit? And then also, you've already touched on these, but like the footwork and the importance of footwork, because it's something that everybody talks about. I just don't mm -hmm. know if everybody knows the best way to teach it or communicate it to their players. Yeah, so the, the two stances are kind of rooted in, in what you're kind of requiring of your players, right? So the upward stance is more of take that classical stance and don't have the players get so low, you know, keep them kind of in recovery mode which you would see more in kind of like a soccer setting. And then the forward stance is really pressuring the ball more. And that's kind of what you would see in football at the you know defensive end kind of position where the upper body of the player is rotating a lot at the hips and you might not see as much knee bend, but they're really leaning kind of forward. And the teaching cues that you use for those stances kind of vary because just like you're working with, let's say, a, a player you're working on dribble moves with, you know, the cues would be different for a player who's super explosive with the ball and, and you use different cues than, than a player who's slower and more savvy with driving angles. And, and the same thing with defense. If we're working with, let's say, a slower footed defender, we're probably using the upward stance. And our goal is just to focus on containing the ball. So you might use a phrase, you know, that I've stolen from Greg Popovich, which is just keep backing up. And that might sound like hearsay to some coaches listening, but if our goal is to just stay in front, keep that on-ball cushion and force them to finish over us at the rim or, or settle for contested mid-range jump shots, 
then just keep backing up will really trigger that approach almost immediately. Whereas if we want our players to really pressure the ball, we might say something like no comfy quarterbacks, which means we don't want any offensive player just to be sitting there in a clean pocket, ready to pick apart our defense with on time on target passes. Instead, we want their focus to be on us as the defender and get into the dribble pockets and really kind of instill this disruptive control in our defenders. Uh, you brought them up. I want to come back to teaching individual defense just a second here, but you brought them up and I'm always interested in these as a teacher and trying to communicate against when the, this, the fast pace nature of basketball and helping players understand a lot of things or remember things, just giving them those teaching cues without having to go on and on and on about things. So the short phrases, are there any other key teaching cues that you use, whether it's on-ball individual defense or off-ball defense that maybe would be helpful for coaches? Well, I think one of the first ones, you know, we try and instill for a pressure, let's say, team where we're, we're trying to really get in the ball is, is this idea of disruptive control. And and we kind of break it down in that the players, when they are pressuring the ball so tightly, you're, you're obviously going to give up something, like an attacking angle at some kind of degree, right? But as a defender, we know that we're giving that up. And so we can constantly kind of reposition ourselves to take that away and continuing that pestering motion of taking away what we're giving up. That's kind of the disruptive control that we're talking about. And it's very disorienting for an offensive player to constantly be changing his reads and what we're giving up actually just changed. Talk to me a little bit more about drill structure and how that goes along with your overall philosophy of, of teaching the things that we've just talked about to this point? For me, I've never been a, a, a guy who wants their drills to appear on social media and get a lot of traction like that. You know, the drills that I'm using are, are pretty simple and, and that's really to maximize the teaching uh, of what we're working on and to allow the players really to focus on the techniques that, that we're trying to improve. And so the simpler the drill, the better for me. And then you want to kind of add these live components as early and as often as possible, because especially when you're working on defense, so much of it is about anticip anticipation, reaction, reacting to a ball handler. And so we want to add those live components and we want to progress. We want to choose drills that have progressions. We don't want to just choose a drill and then be done with it. We want to choose a drill where we can actually progress that drills to make it harder and harder, add live components. And so when we're working on individual defense, we want to incorporate all those things, make it a simple drill, make it live to some sense, at least progressing to a live component and then repping one on one as much as you can. Because when we think about it, just like we work on developing great shooters, so our offenses can be better, the better our on ball defenders can be, the better it's ultimately going to help our team defensive system. And so I think the more time we invest in developing great defenders, is actually going to see the benefit to our team defense as well. One of the things that I've noticed, especially as kids jump from the high school to the college ranks, when I get the freshmen in, one of the hardest things that they have is just simply guarding the basketball. I don't know in a lot of programs that they're necessarily required to do that. And I don't know if that has to do with a lot of them are playing zone or if they just are not taught to do that. Or like you said, if they're not really getting much exposure to reps of playing one-on-one -on -one or even being forced to guard the basketball. So they're just not prepared to do that. You've talked about playing one-on-one. -on -one. Is it just simply as me versus you and I just check the ball up and I play one-on-one? -on -one, or are you putting them in, in situations where they're 
there is an advantage maybe for one side or the other, or it's going from some sort of drill to a live one-on-one. How do you structure those so that they are actually getting the reps that are needed to become better on-ball defenders? For sure. Well, I think the bare minimum is definitely just to check it up and play. You know, they can do that on their own and see the benefits. But when we're working actually on developing something, we definitely want to add a constraint for working on recovery technique, putting the defense at a disadvantage so that they can choose a recovery tactic that we'll go over. And it's just like adding to their tool bag, right? We talk about adding to offensive players' tool bags all the time. The same thing on defense, right? There's so many different defensive techniques that the players are, are really not aware of sometimes and just giving them that exposure. And we do want to start our drills pretty simple and limit the offensive player so that we can build on defensive improvement. And so once we can build on improvement, we can see that confidence kind of grow and the depl- players become more invested in their defensive development and really playing great on ball defense. Do you then build up to a smaller sided game uh you know a two on two three on three or does it quickly go into four on four five on five type it really depends on your head coach but for for me i I think there's a lot of value to small-sided games especially with the amount of space you have to cover when you're working two on two or three on three you know that space is amplified and and if you're able to really work in the worst case scenario then come game time when it's five on five when you'll have more help when you have shorter distances you'll be better prepared to really execute in those situations. So I, I see there's a great value in, in small-sided games and, and really constrained you know, small-sided games, limiting the offense and forcing the defense into some situations. Up until now, technology in youth sports has been used in relatively limited ways. Many of the apps are often slow and clunky, and many of them aren't even mobile-friendly. Wildcard's all-in-one app empowers you to manage your team or club plus create social engagement directly with players. Your team can stay connected beyond game time with blazingly fast features like chat, virtual challenges, game recaps, and profiles. They've recently launched club management so you can easily manage hundreds of teams, delegate responsibilities, and communicate simply with everyone on your team. A desktop version of club management also allows you to import thousands of teams, events, and rosters in one click and manage your entire club comfortably on one computer. Sign up for summer and fall with Wildcard. If you onboard in June, you'll get Wildcard for free, plus get grandfathered in. Use the link in the description to sign up. Again, that's the app, Wildcard. Coach, one more thing. If you haven't signed up for the members only, a quick timeout plus weekly email newsletter, let me tell you what you're missing out on. Each Sunday, I'll be sharing exclusive content not found anywhere else, including coaching courses, web clinics, video breakdowns, and audio and video interviews. That's four pieces of content a month for just $5. All you have to do is click the link in the description, and you'll not only start receiving new newsletters, but you'll also have access to all of our previous pieces of content as well. So sign up today to join the Quick Timeout Podcast Plus. We hope to see you on the list. What I've seen is to this point, a lot of small-sided games, whether that's on Twitter or social media or anywhere, from an offensive perspective, Mm -hmm. but I haven't really seen a lot of a defensive focus. And I'm just kind of wondering what is the best way to teach? Because, you know, it goes beyond individual defense, me just guarding the basketball, but now teams, those offensive teams that are getting better in those those small sided games are exploiting help and recovers and doubles and anything, trapping of ball screens or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And so like what kinds of things should we be focusing on and what kinds of things should we be maybe drilling in those small sided games 
outside just going, um, well, I got better as an on-ball defender playing one-on-one. Now it's time for us to play five-on-five, and you're still not very happy with your team because we actually skipped over the middle part of having chances for players to play in those three-on-three, two-on-two type scenarios. Do you have any suggestions or ideas or thoughts with that? You know, I think it's funny, you know, those small-sided games we see all the time on Twitter, we actually use those same ones when we're developing defense. We just shift the focus, right? And, and I think that's the same kind of drill constraint. But because there's a live defensive component, you should not give up the opportunity to coach that defender as well. And so you just need to be aware of what recovery tactics, you know, they have available in those, let's say, one-on-one where the defender starts slightly behind the offensive player on a drive Yes, we can focus on the finishing ability of the offensive player, the way he can shield the recovery uh, line of the defensive player. But we should also focus on what the choice that the defender is making, right? Do they have time to, to sprint in front and, and try and use a wall-up tactic where they can limit their fouls? Or do they have to use some kind of tactic from behind where it's more of a chase-down block or a run-through where they where they attempt to steal without changing their sprinting velocity? and those are just some tactics in, in the recovery section of the book, but, you know, just add, making sure that we're coaching offense and defense in those small sided disadvantaged games. Yeah. A word that you mentioned earlier that I found to be helpful in creating an advantage for one or the other is just simply constraints. Like what am I trying to accomplish out of this? All right. Give them a, just a phrase that I'm thinking of, but like give them a step ahead, whatever the defense needs a step one step ahead to be able to get that advantage so that you can get whatever you're trying to do, whether that's all right, throw the ball into the post and the the doubler is already close by so that they can get to it quick and actually or the offense is beat a help and rotation already put the guy in the spot that he needs to be to help and then to for everybody else to rotate. So my suggestion, I guess, there is just constraints, <laughs> what you said earlier. This isn't one that I, I, I'm excited or I, I was looking forward to asking, are there any things that you would say that we're doing wrong in regards to teaching defense? But is there, are there any maybe like small details that either because of the way that the game is played now or because of the kinds of players that we have or because of the information that we have that we could be doing differently so that our players can have more success? Well, I think there's there's two that definitely jump out to me. But before I say that, like, you're so right. Like, the things we're, we're doing in the 80s are still the same things we're doing defensively kind of from an individual perspective that we are now. And we've definitely seen things change. You know, <laughs> that used to be the days of the two-handed push shots, right? And, and now we're seeing this complete different art of shooting and same thing with dribble moves and there's just been so many offensive revolutions. We're still waiting for that defensive revolution. For me, I think the major thing is just focusing on individual defense beyond just heart and hustle. You know, I, I think a lot of times I've heard coaches say, you know, defense is a choice. Just choose to be a great defender or it's all about your heart and hustle. And I think that just oversimplifies it. Like if I'm a player coming to a coach, I don't want to just hear those buzzwords and it, the onus be completely on me to improve my defense because I might be trying hard already. Of course, heart and hustle is important, right? You need that to be great at anything in sports. We wouldn't say, wow, that jump shooter lacks heart in his jump shot, right? And that's why he's not shooting well. But we say that for a defender, and I don't think that's that's fair. But, you know, the two things that kind of um, that, that I don't see at all really uh, for great defenders is kind of that, let's say we're doing zigzag slides, where you're kind of sliding to the elbow and then sliding to half court or however you want to do it, you don't see that drop step 
in, in great defenders. You just, you just don't see it because it opens their hips too much and it really gives too much of a driving angle. And I think that's the first thing I usually work with with the players, eliminating that kind of drop step in their defensive stance and more doing pop-back slides. And, and if we are going to open up because we are beat, it's a transition right into a different footwork where we can recover, whether it's a crossover step or a two-touch slide to really you know, cover that momentum, that, that distance, and really get back in front and square up the offensive player. So the drop step for defense is something I think is definitely one we can cross off as soon as we can. I always like to ask. I think another one that I like to ask every every coach when I talk defense on here, but the importance of closeout. Is there a best way to do it? Is there a better way to do it mm-hmm. than maybe either what's traditionally been done or just like explain the thinking that goes behind selecting what type of technique we're using for our closeouts? Yeah, I think closeouts, obviously, as the game advances to better and better shooters and spacing becoming more, more and more important for offense, it's the closeout's only going to become harder. And the first thing I, I always think about when we're thinking of closeouts is how to cover that off-ball to on-ball distance as most effectively as we can. And you'll see that kind of hip-driving technique of using that crossover step, kind of like you see in baseball with a guy stealing second base. And I think that's the first thing that we need to train outside of, you know, in strength and conditioning, that, that movement, so that we can best cover, cover that space. And then we can work on what we're doing when we're approaching. That gray area of whether we're chopping our feet or what are we doing in that area? And I, uh, it's definitely a contentious debate between coaches, what you're doing there. Are you just running and stopping or are you chopping your feet? It's taken me a long time to try and figure out which way I lean towards and, and studying different players. And really, it's truly inconclusive. I know there's a lot of studies in the NBA that have proven that chopping your feet might be less effective in terms of limiting shots and, and taking them away and also contesting them. But the, the run and stop is just something that we haven't seen as much as coaches or certainly haven't drilled as much. But I would say when you're telling a player to, let's say, do a one dribble pull up, you want them to do that as quickly as they can and come to a complete stop into the shooting motion. You don't tell them to chop their feet as they're about to pull up. Or when they're running, when you tell them to run down and back, you know, baseline and baseline, your players aren't chopping their feet to touch the baseline to turn direction. So why do we do that when we're closing out? So that's a question I would ask. I think when you do that run to stop, you're kind of doing that one-two stop, and and that is more, more helpful to a system that's forcing a direction because you can one, two, stop and be in position to kind of force baseline or force middle. Uh, when you're chopping your feet, it does keep you more square on your closeout. And then once you're there, I think you need to get into how are you impacting a shot? Some of the teaching cues we use are contest at the point of release, know your max gap, steal second base. We use steal your second base because I think in today's game especially, you need to start anticipating closeouts. You can't just be reacting to the ball because the ball moves so fast we need to start anticipating our closeouts so that we can get there in time on the catch. And if we actually anticipate and get there and get there on the catch, then we can eliminate the whole conversation of chopping your feet or doing whatever, because you're already there, right? And ready to guard the ball. All right, let me go back out, expand back out a little bit. So we got very detailed. I want to talk more like system as we kind of wrap things up. The last couple questions here. I'm always an offensive coach. I'm always looking for those special situations, opportunities for me to either 
you know, steal a point, steal a layup, steal an extra possession, whatever it is. But from a defensive perspective, too, in the last couple of years, there are some things that I've tried to do special situation wise to take away a scoring opportunity. Because if I'm thinking about it, the other coaches are thinking about it, too. Are there any special situations adjustments that you have found to be helpful? I think in every situation, ultimately, we want our fundamentals to come through at the toughest point, right? The old saying, we don't rise to the occasion, we sink to the level of our training. Um, but we also must remember coaches are smart, right? And we need to put our players in position to execute those fundamentals. So I think for me, I always resort to, to two things when thinking of special situation defense. And, and number one, that's how can I keep players in the best position to have a chance to defend the last shot? Right. How can we eliminate, you know, blown situations, uh, blown coverages that can lead to an easy basket? So typically, you know, you'll see uh, from me at least more switching at the end of games or, or more zonal principles to handle those great sets that coaches can draw up or out of bounds plays. And then getting into a man kind of marking situation where we at least have a chance to defend one on one. And the second thing is thinking, is the opposing team have a player that kind of trumps our defensive system? Right. So basically, if the other team has Steph Curry, I'd much rather try and make sure that he doesn't end up with the ball in his hand for the last shot than making sure just we have a chance to defend him. So then you can get into some junk defense, some some different coverages to get the ball out of his hands or prevent him from getting the shot, that last shot. But I think those are the two tenets, right? Is there a main threat we need to take away? And then you can get into some junk and stuff like that. Or do we just need to stay in great position and eliminate those blown assignments and, and kind of contain those great play designs that coaches can come up with? Specific to this year and the NBA playoffs, we're right in like the heart of it and kind of winding down the two conference tournaments and the two conference playoffs. Are there any adjustments that you've seen, significant adjustments that you've seen in this year's NBA playoffs that have either, oh, man, I want to try that with my team mm -hmm. or something that maybe you have felt has kind of like swung. I was just talking to somebody about this yesterday, but it's incredible to me the adjustments that NBA teams make. If we really understood what was happening, like it would mm -hmm. blow most of our minds from game to game that by the time when you get to like that seventh game, you're really seeing some incredible level of basketball because of the adjustments that have been made over the past six games that now you're seeing these two teams really at their best. And a lot of times it does have to do with, I feel like maybe I'm wrong here, it does have to do with the defensive end because yeah. we're always trying to think about what we're trying to do to stop the other team. There may be small things that people don't pay attention to or something big, either one. And it could be a couple if you want to, or three or four, I don't really care. <laughs> maybe some things that, you, that you've seen that you're like, man, that was, that was really impressive and swung the series or won a series for a team. The NBA is, is full of the best coaches in the world for sure. And it's amazing. Like you said, so many of the adjustments are things you, it's so hard to pick up on and they're constantly changing. And it might be just as simple as a personnel. And, and a lot of it is geared personnel wise in the NBA, you know, changing personnel, just changing, you know, the intensity of, of stunting levels or, or closeout intensities and things like that. But the one series I've been obsessed with is the jazz Clippers one. And, I, would, I actually did a breakdown in the regular season on my YouTube channel because I was, I, I was really hoping that this would be a playoff series because I think Quinn Snyder and, and Ty Lue are just phenomenal coaches. Quinn Snyder, especially on the defensive end, and I think we saw some very interesting things. He's more of a system guy, but man, man against the Clippers, 
you know, trying to keep Gobert against their small ball lineup, you saw some really interesting things. And I know they lost, but it's still things that I, I found very interesting. Kind of the opposite of a box and one, where it's kind of four people matching up on the perimeter and, and Gobert kind of just shadowing the on-ball player. Uh, and I think that was a really interesting, interesting scheme. And, and obviously it didn't work out well when Patrick Beverly and, and Mann started hitting some shots. But And I think on the other side, you got Tyron Lue, who is – I think we need to give a lot of respect to him. I mean, he just beat Rick Carlisle and now Quinn Snyder, but he's one of the most creative personnel. I mean, he played 11 players in the first game of that jazz series. And, and even in the, in the Suns game, the first game, he was playing some matchups and lineups that he's just so creative and has the guts to play different personnels and, and really go into his bench. And one of the things I thought they did really interesting was how they were trapping Donovan Mitchell. And I think that really kind of changed the series in the, I think game five and six, when they started really doing it, they would trap even without pick and rolls. But one of the things they were doing in the ball screen was switching pretty aggressively and then waiting until, you know, Mitchell tried to size up that switch to send the trap. So they weren't trapping right on the ball screen. They were kind of delaying that trap into that pullout one-on-one situation. And that really gave the Clippers more time to kind of figure out the rotations and get ready for that trap. And I thought that was a big adjustment. And Really uh, led to some great stops and some great scramble rotations on both sides of the ball, and that was a great series for me. I think on the other side, fortunate still that the Nets, the Bucks were beating Nets. You saw in Game Six, they didn't go and trap Durant, and and it cost mm-hmm. them. So from like that perspective, I'm interested to see when you have two, three superstar offensive players mm-hmm. on the court. The trapping, because I feel like that's like one of the first things somebody goes to. Well, we're going to trap the ball and get the ball out of his hands, which again is great if that's your primary guy and you don't really have anybody else. Mm-hmm. You're kind of hoping that a man and a Beverly step up, right? <laughs> yes. um, but when you don't have somebody like that, is what you just described, is that maybe the best way? Because probably most coaches, high school, even college level, they're not necessarily having to worry about three or four offensive superstars mm-hmm. on the other team is that the most effective or the simplest way to kind of solve some of your problems? But then I guess too, then you're going to have to work on your rotations out of that double team. Well, I'm certainly glad I'm not making the the decisions the NBA coaches are having to make because obviously I think the first thing you have to ask yourself when you're trapping is actually the player you're trapping, how, how do they handle it? Right. We saw a player like Mitchell uh, when the Clippers decided to trap him, he kept trying to split it and drive and attack it. Whereas, you know, last night, you know, in game one of the Suns, when they started trapping Devin Booker, he was, he actually did a phenomenal job passing out of it and really, really hurt them more than helped them. So I think the first thing you have to ask when you're trapping is how is the player about the trap ha- going to handle those traps? And, and also, how is your personnel going to be able to scramble out of it? So, you know, it, it, let's say here at Hofstra, if we're playing two bigs and, and we want to trap, then we're going to rely on at least one big to be in that full rotation. And that's going to be a lot harder. Whereas the Clippers with their small ball lineup, obviously could, could kind of scramble and rotate with less, you know, kind of implication on, on having a big rotate. And so I think at a lower level, uh, trapping is pretty disruptive, especially because players just don't handle the traps as well as NBA players. So I think that is a, an effective thing to go to, but obviously there are different, different situations that you can obviously put your players in. 
Yeah, that first game with the Suns and what Booker was able to do, not just for himself scoring-wise, but down the stretch being able to make plays for other people when they were sending a second and sometimes even a third defender Mm -hmm. at him was a huge difference. All of that without Chris Paul on the court. Before I let you go here, you know, share with people where they can find you, find out more about what you're doing, and then also about the book and where they can purchase that. I'd love to hear from anyone. You know, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter uh, at Mike underscore Jagaki, and I'll spell my last name J A G A C K I. And you can also send me an email. You know, send me an email at any time, ask questions, start a conversation. It's Mike Jagaki at gmail.com. And of course, if you want to look at the book, you can find it best on Amazon. I'm kind of running out of, of supply here on my website. So Amazon's probably your best bet, amazon.com. Just type in Lockdown Defense Book and it'll come right up. And obviously check out my YouTube channel, Coach Mike Lockdown Defense, for any free material and, and in-depth player breakdowns. That's Coach Mike Jakaki of Hofstra University. ton of great stuff, I, you know, a lot of stuff to think about. I hope people will go out and, and buy the books. Coach, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. That'll do it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you again at the next time out.